Well, take that Bible and, and look over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. We find ourselves closing out this fifth chapter here. It's been a wonderful look, and we come to the third part of the witnesses to the deity of Christ. Third part, part three, and I'd like to just read the text for you. John chapter 5, verses 37 through 47. You follow along as I read. And the Father who sent me, these are the words of Christ, has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. You do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you, not, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's a wonderful section of Scripture there on the testimony or the witness of Scripture. Now, you remember, just as we've been in this chapter for a few weeks, that it really is all together in chapter 5 that he had healed the man that uh, had been laid at the pool for 38 years. Jesus said, what do you want me to do? And he couldn't step down into the water. He was just there, an invalid, laid at the pool. He couldn't get in the water. They believed that an angel would come, and it was more superstition than anything. And when that angel would come, he would stir the waters, and it would be miraculous. And so people would put uh, people who were ill and diseased at this pool waiting for that opportunity. And Jesus came up to him, and he said, what do you want me to do? And Jesus healed that man on the spot. He performed a wonderful miracle. After 38 years, the man got up, picked up his mat or his bed, and he walked And the key there in verse 9 of chapter 5 is that the day was the Sabbath. And he healed that man on the Sabbath, which was a tremendous no-no for them. But what it led to was one of the most profound statements, I believe, in all of the Scripture on the person of Christ, namely that he is God. In fact, following that healing on the Sabbath day, Jesus gave four bold declarations regarding his equality with God. Remember that he said in verses 17 and 18 that he's equal to God in essence, that what the Father does, I do. He said, secondly, that he's equal with God in action, that as God the Father has power and authority over life and death, that power, that authority over life and death has been given to the Son. Then he thirdly said that he's equal to God in power. That like the Father can raise the dead, God has given that authority to Christ. And then he's equal to God in honor. In 23 and 24, look at verse 23. There Jesus said that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
And so there, Jesus makes one of the most profoundest statements in all of the New Testament regarding his identity. He is God. He is deity. He is not just a man. He is not just a rabbi. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a Jewish uh, teacher that brings out good truth. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. He is God in the flesh. And that's what was stated in John 1, 1 and John 1, 14. So then we looked at those illustrations down through verse 30, and then the text began to change where we move from his identification to what I call his verification, okay? Verification. In other words, here's who he is, and now we're going to look at why he is verified, if you will, to make such a claim. In fact, you might ask the question, on what grounds can he make such bold claims? And what follows then in verse 30, all the way down through 47, is the witnesses that affirm who Christ is. You remember we looked at that a few weeks back that in Jewish thought, it would certainly be enough for Christ to identify himself as he did as God. But in Jewish thought, in a court of law, they would need two or three witnesses to verify every fact. And so we go from these bold declarations to now these witnesses that testify to the person of Christ. And there are four of them. And we've looked at the first three. We noted that the Father is a witness of Christ. Look at verse 32 uh, in John 5, in verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that his testimony that he bears about me is true. Look down in verse 37. The Father who sent me has borne witness about me. And so Jesus calls on God Almighty, God the Father here, as a witness to the truthfulness of his claims. Then secondly, in verse 33 through 35, he called on John the Baptist as a witness, that he was a bright and shining lamp, it says there, and John bore witness. And we took the time to look through those passages where John said, this is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God. This is the one who I am identifying as the very one that I came for, and he identified Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we looked at the works of Christ in verse 36, that the works of Christ, the miracles, and what we've even seen in John's gospel, if you will, are another witness of who he is. He is God. He, he declares to be God in the opening frame of the frame of the chapter, and then he if you will, shows through these witnesses. And then we finished last week, and we'll pick it up this week, on the Scripture, the Scriptures as a witness. And it runs from 37 to 47. And as I mentioned, these witnesses validate his supernatural claims concerning his deity. And these are for the point back in John chapter 20 that you might believe. And so you've got all this truth being marshaled here, all this effort, his bold declarations of who he is, and then the witness of the Father, the witness of the Baptist, the witness of the works, and now the witness of the Scriptures. But amazingly, okay, the Jewish leaders failed to believe the witnesses that validates his claim. They, they didn't believe these witnesses. 
and they are guilty, if you will, on six different accounts, okay? And, and, what I, and, and I'm just going to try to teach the text. And so when I say they're guilty on six different accounts, the text itself is, is showing this. And so I'm coming to you on Memorial Weekend. It's a little bit of a, of a tone of what he's charging the Jewish people for. And, and the, the takeaway I want you to see in this is this, that the sinner is culpable, that the sinner is responsible. And we've looked at that through John. But he does not let the Jewish people off, even though they've had the Scriptures, even though they had the Old Testament, even though they had the law, Jesus goes right after them, and he's in this courtroom language, and then he indicts them on six different accounts. He said, number one, you do not hear him, and we saw that last week. In other words, you fail to see that the words of Christ, that the voice of Christ is the very words of God. And then they said, secondly, in verse 37b, you do not see him. In other words, they couldn't recognize that he himself was God. And we went back to John 1.14, where it says the word became flesh. And in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, what? Was God. They couldn't hear him. They couldn't see him. Thirdly, they couldn't abide in him. And so even though they were around the Scriptures in verse 38, they did not abide in His Word. And we somewhat left off there. Now pick up the text in verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures to these Jewish leaders because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that bear witness about Me. In other words, they thought that the life itself was actually in the Scriptures. And so they meticulously studied the Torah, and the scribes spent great time at it. And there's certainly nothing wrong with meticulously going through the Scriptures. But what Jesus is saying there in verse 39 is you think that in the Scriptures, in the Scriptures themselves, you have eternal life. But it points, look at verse 39. Jesus said, it is these that bear witness of me that the Scriptures themselves point and push to the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember I shared with you last week, there was a rabbi by the name of Hillel who actually thought that some Jewish people would enter into, if you will, the gates of heaven just based purely on the fact that they would study the Word of God. And I'm just telling you, I've, as a pastor, have known many people who have given themselves to the study of the Word of God and their life doesn't match up with anything that they study. In fact, there's a number of men even today teaching at seminaries who don't know the Savior. They don't know the Savior. They might even know the Greek and they certainly, some of them, know the Hebrew, but it's an academic piece. I went to classes at Cal State Northridge and I took the Bible as literature. And you can go into those classes and just like a piece of literature, they hold the Bible to be a piece of literature. But there's no power in it. And so Jesus says, you've got some who are searching the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life when Jesus says it's actually these that bear witness of me. The Scriptures are pointing to the person of Christ. So Jesus begins to unload, if you will, in these these terms, 
his indictments. You don't hear him. You can't see him. You don't abide in him. And let me pick up this fourth indictment. We'll look at the final three this morning. He says, and you do not come to him. You do not come to him. Look at, look at verse 40. It says there, you refuse there to come to me that you may have life. Now, stop there just for a second. They're refusing to come to him. In other words, they're deliberate. They, they've rejected him, but they've rejected him Actively, if you will. There is culpability in this text. There is responsibility given to those who hear. You don't come to me that you have life. Now, it's interesting. If you look back just for a second, we look back in John 1, because other people have come to Christ. Do you remember in John chapter 1, and I'm in verse 38 there, they said Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, verse 39 of chapter 1, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jesus gave them that admonition, You come and follow me. And the text says, They came and followed him. Look back in chapter 1 again at verse 45. This is the calling of the disciples. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip, it said, said to him, Come and you will see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, This is the language of conversion, is it not? There is a coming to the person of Christ. There is a reception of the person of Christ. And the coming of to Christ and the reception of Christ always leads, like in John 6.35, to life in Christ. But you remember now, as you go back to John chapter 5, they refused to come to him. So, in other words, he's indicting them. And you certainly remember John 1.11, that he came unto his own and his own people did not what? receive him. And so anticipating the charge that our Lord is maybe acting out of some kind of self-interest that he wants people to come to him, look what he said in John 5, 41. He said this because he's anticipating this. He says, I do not receive glory from people. And, and we know this according to John chapter 5 and verse 19, that his only vision on this earth was to please his father. In fact, he said in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him, to his father. And so the Jews had it all wrong, did they not? They were on the wrong path. They were on the path of self-righteousness. In fact, Paul said in Romans 10, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So even here, they, they didn't come to Christ. And we know, beloved, that self-righteousness saves no one. In fact, it says, does the prophet Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
And so they wanted the praise of people. They wanted to work their way to heaven. And here as the Son of God arrives on the scene and he makes these bold declarations and he says that I am one in essence with the Father. I am one in power with the Father. I am one in honor with the Father. And he marshals out these witnesses and he brings the witness of the Father and brings the witness of the Baptist and he performs these great miracles. Here's the indictment. You refused to come to him. And so they didn't want the righteousness that only Christ could offer, the one who is the very source of life. And frankly, beloved, there's many people today who do the same thing. They don't want to bow their knee to Christ. They don't want to recognize who he is. You say, well, why do people refuse to come to him? Look at the next verse. Jesus will say why. He says in verse 42, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. He tells the Jewish leaders they do not have the love of God within them. I mean, if you're a Jewish person and you're hearing that, that is a shocking statement. I mean, these are the Jewish people that, according to Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 6, were wearing little phylactery boxes on their head. And they had these little boxes that they would tie there because Jesus told them to bind his truth on their forehand and on their heart. And they took it so literally that even today when you go to Israel, there are Orthodox Jews that have some on their forehead strapped with a little string, a little box. And what they're going to do is every single day open that little box and pull a scripture out of that box. And on that scripture is going to be Deuteronomy 6.4. Some Jewish people would wear that phylactery on their arm and they would quote from what we would call the Shema, that you're to love the Lord, the, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your strength and with all your might. And right out of Deuteronomy. Can you imagine the shock when Jesus is there? It certainly doesn't sound very politically correct to say to a bunch of Jewish leaders in this setting here, he goes, listen, you refuse to come to me, and here's why. You don't have the love of God in your heart. That's not what they loved. You say, well, what did they love? Well, I'll show you what they loved. Remember, look back at John 3. Here's what they loved in John 3. He says in verse 19, he says, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people, here it is, love the what? They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so Jesus indicts him here, does he not? He says, you refuse to come to me. You do not have the love of God in your heart. It reminds me out of that oft-quoted statement in the New Testament in Isaiah. It says in Matthew chapter 15 that this people honors me with their lips, but their what? Their heart is far from me, and in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And beloved, if I could just share an implication from the text here, It may not be politically correct in the evangelical church to say this, but if you reject the person of Jesus Christ, you reject God, right? If you push Christ out of the picture, whom all the scriptures point to, then you don't love the God that you profess to love. In fact, look what Jesus said. Look on in verse 43. He says to these leaders who are listening in, I have come in my Father's name, and here it is again, you do not Receive me. Stop there. 
Jesus is saying, I've come. I've been commissioned. I've been sent down by God the Father. I took on flesh and you don't receive me. In other words, he says, I came in my Father's name. Back down to, back to chapter 5, verse 19. He not only comes in the Father's name, he comes in the Father's authority. But they refuse to come to him in spite of all these testimonies, in spite of his bold declarations, in spite of these testimonies that have been marshaled together for us. The Father, the Baptist, the works of Christ, the Scripture. So they reject him. They don't come to him. But amazingly, look back at verse 43. This stuns me. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will what? Receive him. This is stunning. They reject the very one that came from the glory of heaven, the person of Christ. They reject him, don't come to him. But if another comes in his own name, speaking of a false teacher, as Scott Booker so clearly laid out today, they will receive him. And so here Jesus is predicting the proliferation of false Christ at this point at the end of time. At the end of time. In fact, it says in Matthew 24, 5, that many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So it's a sad thing about the Jewish people. They're open to false messiahs who flatter with their words, and they close themselves off to the very one whom God the Father has sent, and the one who is the true glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting that in church history, when you begin to read like even Jewish historians, maybe you've heard of his name by the name of Josephus. He records that even at the time of around 70 AD, there was just a mess of messianic pretenders claiming to be the Christ. What's interesting is there's a commentator by the name of Leon Morris who takes time to backtrack in Jewish history, and he accounted as many as 64 who would come after Christ claiming to be the Christ. Of course, you well know that the greatest one still awaits us. He's called the Antichrist. He will come in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 8 through 10, and he will do wonders in the sky, and many people will follow him. So Jesus says, listen, I come in my Father's name and you refuse me. You do not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you receive them, and in the end, the Antichrist will come. So here he just says very boldly on on indictment number four there that you refuse and you do not come to me. But there's a fifth indictment, and it's in verse 44, a fifth indictment, and it's this. You do not honor him is what he tells the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In other words, you you do not honor him. You seek the glory that comes from another. And this is what they were plagued by. In fact, one commentator said being so self-absorbed in the fulfillment of their own religious duties, they had no room for God. And I just tell you, beloved, this happens all the time, men in the name of Christ. It's really not about Christ. It's about them. Their whole ministry is about them. Their whole ministry is about receiving glory from someone else. They want the accolades and they want to get all the credit for somebody on an earthly human level. And he says to these Jewish leaders, listen, you don't even honor him. You don't even give glory to him. You're all about yourself. You seek the glory that comes from another. 
In fact, it says in John 12, 43, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And there's a lot of this in the name of religion. In fact, I would tell you that every week I am exposed again to false teachers just as Scott was speaking this morning in the class on Jude. They're out there. In fact, they infiltrate churches. They've infiltrated the evangelical church. It says they creep in unnoticed. In fact, Paul told the elders at Miletus in Acts chapter 20, he said, there will be people from your own selves that will come into your own flock and mislead many, dragging the disciples away. And that's the day in which we live. And they don't want the honor of God. They don't exist for the glory of God. They exist for themselves. In fact, I'll say something very bold to you, that there's many men who use the church as a cloak to cover their own sin. And so we have to be very discerning what we do here. In fact, I think there's some people who even pick out churches like ours because it creates the foil for the lifestyle that they want to continue to live in, although they are in a doctrinally minded church. So listen, he's just, Jesus is just He's going after these guys, is he not? He says, here, you don't even honor him. Now, I want to show you something in the text. Look down at verse 44. It's very interesting. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Now, watch this, 44. And do not seek, do you see what it says? The glory that comes from the only God. Now, in the language there, there's an article that you do not seek the glory. Well, who is the glory? He's referring to someone. It's not just glory nebulously. You do not seek, verse 44, the glory that comes from the only God. Who's that? It's Christ. Look back, if you will, just in your Bible, just for a moment to John 1, 14. Do you remember that statement that we saw months back where here John the Apostle says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his what glory glory is the only son from the father who is full of grace and truth so they don't seek the glory the glory that's bound up in the person of christ the glory that was shown in his miracles in chapter 2 11 and so he says you don't honor him you don't honor him It's not about him, it's about you. And it's about what you can do and how you can be seen. And we live in that day. And beloved, I just warn us, there's going to be a proliferation of false teachers. I can't tell you what a joy it was for me even (laughs) this morning. Just briefly, I was walking a family over who's brand new and their kids over to the Sunday school class. And we were just a little bit late. And um, we're making our way over to Scott's class and I walked into the room, the children's room, and there was Dr. Tommy teaching the kids that they need to obey the Word of God out of Deuteronomy 4. Listen, I just want you to know we're going to unleash truth every place we have it here at Grace Church of the Valley. And I just want you to know from my heart, the elder's heart, we never want to compromise that truth. And what's scary is you just make one wrong decision and then then a slippery slope begins and you begin to go so far off, you've lost sight of truth. You're more concerned with what people think than what God thinks. You're more concerned with pleasing people than seeking the glory that only belongs to Christ and God. And I just promise you, it's our heart as we walk in the Spirit. We never want to venture off from the truth of Scripture. And so they didn't even want to honor him. They're religious 
frauds, if you will. They're like whitewashed tombs, Jesus said in Matthew 23. You appear on the outside all white, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. And beloved, sadly, we live around this. It's around us. It's in the States. It's all over the place. And and I'll tell you, it's going to cost us something. I don't even want to say the future. It's going to cost us something to stand for truth and not compromise in a day of capitulating ideas and ideologies. And we need to be strong. And the way you stay strong is you put your focus on Christ. You seek to be and live for the glory of God. But he gives them a final indictment. Do you see it there in verse 45? It's the sixth and final indictment. And hang on with me because I don't want to just leave on this note. I'm going to try to turn it for us a little bit. But at 645, he, and this is amazing. He says, do not think, he says to these leaders, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And so here's the sixth and final indictment. He says, you do not believe him. You do not believe Christ. Now, it's, it's interesting. He says in verse 45 that there's one who accuses you, and, he, and it's Moses. Now, we just got done in chapter 5 recognizing that Jesus himself is the judge. Look back at chapter 5 and verse 22. The Father, it even says there in 522, judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. He's given it to the Son, Right? And so the Father has delegated, if you will, judgment to the Son. But here what's interesting is he doesn't even speak of himself in this judgment. He says, actually, the one who accuses you is Moses. I mean, it's just a shock. Jaws must have just dropped open. No wonder in 518 they wanted to kill him. The one whom you've set your hope, he will be the one who judges you. And you say, well, Scott, how do you, how do you look at that if... Moses is the one who judges, but Jesus is the one who's been given that judgment. Listen, Jesus Christ in John 17, excuse me, John 3, 17, says that he did not come to condemn, but he came to what? He came to save. His mission on earth in 3, 17 was to save. Oh, people will meet him at the judgment day, but his very noble purpose of coming was not to condemn man but to save man. But here he says to these Jewish people, listen, the one who's going to condemn you is Moses, that one whom gave you the law, that one whom you claim to be his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, 28 and 29, the one whom Moses was so highly esteemed and so highly revered. In fact, beloved, even today, did you know this? There's some evidence that there are Jewish people today who, thinks, who think that Moses, even now, continues to serve in a ministry of intercession on behalf of the nation of Israel, praying for them from heaven as he prayed for them on earth, did Moses in 32. He just continues that ministry. And so they venerated him, but now he is the very one who accuses them. He's the very one who prosecutes them. And this is shocking if you're a Jew. The Jewish people thought that the law was an end and of itself, even as some think about it today, but they were basing their salvation on the law and the keeping of it, not on Christ. So why could he make such a statement? Look down at verse 46. He says, a marvelous statement, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he 
wrote of me. Amazing statement. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He's the guy that wrote about me. You say, well, what's scripture? Well, two weeks ago, I think we looked at that in five, actually just 39, where he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness of me all through the Old Testament. There, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, they were pointing their way to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what Jesus says. They do not believe me because they've never embraced Moses. Or to put it another way, they put all their hope in Moses and not to the one who Moses wrote about, which was Christ. In other words, I could put it this way. If you do not, Jesus would say this, believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? And the thought would be is to believe the one is to believe the other. To reject the one is to reject the other. Listen, beloved, if they rejected the writings of Moses, whom they respected, how could they ever believe the words of Christ by whom they were repulsed by? And so this is a, just a clear indictment on their part. I think this scripture might even come up in Luke. Let me see if that comes up. There it is. Do you remember that from last week after his resurrection? Oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures. I love that little phrase. The things concerning himself. And then he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand. You'll notice it says there on the bottom, the scriptures, the scriptures of the Old Testament, that all the Old Testament, you can read it each week. Maybe some of you do in your Bible reading. It's all pointing to the person and the work of Christ. It's pointing to his great work of, on the cross, his suffering and his glories that follow. Do you remember in that great passage in Luke 16 when the rich man who had everything died and Lazarus who had nothing and was just longing for the scraps to fall from the Lord's table. And there the the rich man said, I beg you, Father, to send him away, send Lazarus away. The rich man's now in, in, in hell, if you will. Send him to my father's house. Luke 16, I have five brothers that he may warn them, uh, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him there, they have Moses, interesting, and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone, goes, he, if, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from, their dead, from the dead. So, beloved Moses, their national hero, Jesus declares now, becomes their prosecutor. Here is a six-fold indictment. Now listen carefully, just for a second here. He says, number one, you do not hear him, and they're culpable for that. You do not see him, meaning that you haven't seen the glory of God in the image of Jesus Christ. You are deserving of blame. Thirdly, you do not Abide in his word. They were blameworthy for that. You do not come to him. They are found wanting for that. You do not honor him. 
In other words, they're guilty as charged and you do not believe him. Beloved, I'm just saying to you that even today, just a takeaway here is the sinner is absolutely responsible for what they do with this message. In fact, they are so responsible. Glance back up to chapter 5 and verse 29 when he said, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil, he says there, to the resurrection of judgment. And so now it, it says in Acts that the times of ignorance are where God overlooked. He's now, he commands that all people everywhere are to repent. So listen, here's the witnesses. He calls on the witness of the Father. He calls on the witness of the Baptist. He calls on the work of Christ. And now Jesus masterfully calls on the Scripture as a witness against them. And these witnesses validate the claims concerning himself. It's it's a powerful text. But I was thinking this week, when you look at those six indictments, and this is just to encourage you, because sometimes when you hear a word like this, and obviously I'm just preaching the Bible, which is, if you're visiting, it's what we do every week. But if you're preaching a message, if you're tender of heart, sometimes you think, well, gosh, maybe that's me. And it could be. If the shoe fits, wear it. But some are of tender conscience. And I thought there's a six-fold indictment here, but I want you to know that the indictment the reverse is true. In other words, the reverse of the indictment, if you will, is the test of a true believer. Let me just tell you what a true believer does and knows. Number one, you hear his voice. You hear his word. Remember, look back in 524. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, whoever hears my, what, word and believes in him. Listen, you're in Christ if you listen to his word. If you've obeyed his word, certainly not perfectly, but if the word becomes that element in your life that becomes the conduct for how you live on this earth, you hear his voice in his word. Secondly, you know what else a true believer does and understands is you see his form in Christ. And what I mean by that is you see Christ for who he is, that the word became flesh, that the word was with God and the word was God, that in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, that the writer of Hebrews says that he is the exact representation of the nature of the character of God that in the person of Christ are all the wisdom of resources and wealth and righteousness and the wealth that comes not externally but internally. You see Christ for who he is. Thirdly, thirdly, you have your, his word abiding in you. It's a joy for me to walk into Dr. Tommy's class and hearing them from Deuteronomy 4, let him, let him hear that it's his word that we are to obey and You have assurance when the govern and the pattern of your life is towards his word. When you submit your own will to his word. When you give your life up so that you can follow Christ. 
when you live for him and that word abides in you. Remember when we'll get there in, in next week, maybe or a couple of weeks in John 6, when all the, all the disciples left. And remember, Peter said, Lord, where would we? And remember, he said to them, do you, you want to go? And remember, Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You have the what? The words of eternal life. Listen, you may sometimes lack assurance, but all I know is you're in the choir today. All I know is you're here. All I know is you're trying to honor God. There's a lot of people who don't come on the Lord's Day. In fact, there's a man that I've been texting. I don't know if he's here. I don't mean to embarrass him. I've been texting him, get in the house of God. Well, I got work. I got work. He always has work. Concern for his eternity of his soul. And you say, well, Scott, because he's going to church. No, listen, when God's word is abiding in him, you want to be around the people of God, don't you? You want to be around this place. I mean, even just walking in this morning, I'm just refreshed, worshiping. But here, the test of a believer is he's got his word in his heart and he's obeying it forth. You've come to him. You've come to him. You haven't refused him. You come to him. You respond to him in faith. But as many as believed in him, John 1, 12, to them he gave the right. Listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you're here this morning. You've come to him and you keep coming to him. You keep coming back to the well. Where else would you go? He, he is the words of eternal life. And here you are. And I'm just encouraging you. Number five, you honor him. I'll just tell you, that's my, my goal. I want to honor him, don't you? I just want to glorify him. I just want to finish well, don't you? In the life of a believer, it's never about himself. Some people only live for themselves. But beloved, when the Lord Jesus Christ gets a hold of you and when he gives you new life, your whole life changes from living for yourself to living for his glory. Now you might say, but pastor, I fall short of that. I know, but you're here in the choir. You may be serving somewhere, and in your heart of hearts, you want to honor him. Listen, I know some people who live all of their life around the fraud of fake religion while their life is something different, and they're living completely for themselves. Listen, when you come to Christ, you want to honor him. You want to glorify him. Young people, you want to give your body to him. This body is not yours. You've been bought with a price, so you don't look like the people in the valley in which we live who do whatever they want with their body. No, you're taking care of your body. You're honoring, you're glorifying God with your body, Romans 12, 2, because you want to seek to please him. And finally, you believe in him, okay? Number six, whereas they didn't believe in him, they didn't believe in the words and writings of Moses, they didn't believe in Christ, but you do. And you look at this and you hold in your hand the word of God. Listen, beloved, this is the word. Now, I know, listen, we don't worship the Bible because the Bible points back to Christ, right? But we find him in this word, and his word is life unto us. Listen, you look at those things. Listen, you, do you hear his voice? Do you see Christ for who he is? Do you have his word abiding in you? You've come to him, you honor him, and you believe in him. I think it's best said of what one writer said. He said, I find my Lord in the book wherever chance that I look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the lily fair. Wherever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He's at the book's beginning, gave to earth its form. He is the ark of shelter bearing the brunt of the storm the burning bush of the desert, the budding of Aaron's rod. Wherever I look in the Bible, 
I see the Son of God, the ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window, and the serpent lifted high, the smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook, the face of my Lord I discover wherever I open the book. He is the seed of woman, the Savior virgin born. He is the Son of God whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and of beauty, the stately Aaron deck, yet he is the priest forever, for he is Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, lamb without spot or flaw. Bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look, wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. Amen.